Find all back episodes and other information at mattsaudioblog.com. Blood and Cheese is another one of those three-word nicknames that you find in A Song of Ice and Fire, like The Red Wedding, The Red Wedding, Wedding, or wedding. Brienne the Bitten, that gets us both excited and terrified as readers of George R. R. Martin's books. And yes, it will be coming to season two of House of the Dragon, but who are Blood and Cheese? What do Blood and Cheese do? How and why do they do it? We'll be exploring all of those questions today, and needless to say, this presentation will spoil major plot developments in season two of House of the Dragon, the books that are a part of Ice and Fire, and even HBO's Game of Thrones series. So this is your final warning to leave us before getting into all kinds of major spoilers. I will also warn you that no matter whether you're watching this presentation on YouTube or listening to it in audio form, you may find some images or passages that are very disturbing. But if after all those warnings you're sticking around, welcome, I'm Matt, and thanks for joining me on Before the Dragon Podcast. The story of Blood and Cheese is found in almost every telling of the Dance of Dragons in some form or another, from The Princess and the Queen, to Fire and Blood, and other supplementary A Song of Ice and Fire materials. And today we'll be looking through these sources to answer some questions, and perhaps pose some new ones that a television adaptation may or may not answer regarding Blood and Cheese. Blood and Let's get going. Let's start with why Blood and Cheese happens, and hopefully we'll fill in some of the who, the what, and everything else with appropriate detail as we go along, so please bear with me. The single incident that gets this whole ball rolling is the death of Lucerus, or as I prefer to call him, Luke. Luke. When Luke falls from the sky at the hands of Aemon and Vagar, and after the news of this arrives to Dragonstone, the members of Rhaenyra's council must now decide on how to respond. The council receives a raven message from Daemon at Harrenhal, more on that in a second, but the passage from the source material reads as follows. As the Black Council sat down to consider how to strike back, a raven arrived from Harrenhal. An eye for an eye, a son for a son, Prince Damon wrote. Lucerus shall be avenged. So obviously we now know that the what is revenge on Aegon II and his children, and the why is of course in response to Luke having been killed. An interesting question to pose might be, why a son for a son? While the source material does not give us a crystal clear answer for this, there is at least two possible speculations that could be made, one of them simple and another more complicated and even darker. The simple way to look at this is merely that Aemon killed Rhaenyra's son, and since Aemon has no children at this time, and since Rhaenyra is a contender for the throne, the target must be a child of the other contender for the throne. A more complex and perhaps even darker answer is this. 
Rhaenyra must now live out the rest of her days with the loss of her child. Even though it might be more logical or fitting to exact revenge on Aegon himself and get this entire war over with as quickly as possible, Daemon seems to want Aegon to suffer in the exact same way that he knows Rhaenyra will. Perhaps the television show will provide an answer for this, or perhaps not. But I'd love to hear why you think Daemon chooses this as a response. Let me know in the video comments if you're on YouTube at the letter B, the number four, the Dragon Pod. You can use that same spelling for the site formerly known as Twitter and post to me there. Or you can send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. Now, after hearing that quote and seeing that it, the raven comes from Harrenhal, we can obviously observe that in the television show, that Damon is not at Harrenhal when the news of Luke arrives. In the show, he is in fact the one who brings the news to Rhaenyra in person. I personally have no doubt that this son for a son idea of revenge will be declared and instigated by Damon. But could season two open up with Damon making that declaration right in front of the council, right where we left off? Whatever the case, the source material dictates that revenge for Luke's death will be declared, planned, and enacted. No matter what the television show might change in the asking of where or even who. But for now, let's assume that the who will be Damon and the entirety of the Blood and Cheese story will occur very early on in season two, perhaps as early as the premiere. And I even believe that we've seen a shot of that revenge being enacted in the late 2023 teaser trailer. But now let's look at who Blood and Cheese are. The source material tells us that Cheese is aptly named for being a rat catcher, and Blood's nickname likely comes from his violent tendencies while serving as a gold cloak, or just his violent tendencies, period. Amidst the stews of Flea Bottom, Prince Damon's go-between found suitable instruments. One had been a sergeant in the city watch, big and brutal. He had lost his gold cloak for beating a woman to death whilst in a drunken rage. The other was a rat catcher in the Red Keep. Their true names are lost to history. They are remembered as Blood and Cheese. Will we learn their actual names in the television show? While it could be a possibility, I'll say likely not. And on top of that, I'm not even sure that I would want to know the real given names of those two despicable human beings. What I personally find most interesting about the passage is how the specific skill sets allow for the achievement of Damon's goal. As a rat catcher, Cheese might already have the knowledge of the secret passageways in the Red Keep, those same passageways used nearly two centuries later in Game of Thrones. Also remember that even if Cheese had not been in the passages prior to taking on this job, both Damon and Rhaenyra would have knowledge of them since we saw evidence of that in episode four of season one, where Rhaenyra used one of those passages to meet Damon outside the castle. And I suppose you can also say that knowledge of the passageways extends to other members of the Black Council. Sir Eric? Or is it Sir Eric? seemingly utilized some of those passages as well to help Prince Rainey's escape from the Red Keep when the Green Council shut it down. But another key for Cheese, being a rat catcher, is that we see all throughout season one an infestation of rats in the Red Keep. We've seen them everywhere from within those secret passageways themselves 
all the way up to being within the king's bedchambers. Even if stopped before the objective is achieved, Cheese has a legitimate excuse for being found milling about places where rats might be. Admittedly, explaining the presence of blood might be a little more difficult. 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 However, we might want to look into why he might be doing this at all. The reasoning could very well be that he served under Damon while Damon was a leader of the Gold Cloaks, respected him, admired him even. Perhaps the violent atrocities allowed for under Damon's rule, such as castrations and decapitations of all criminal types, might even have led blood down this path of violence in the first place. A path of shedding blood, no matter who it is. Be that the woman whose beating got his cloak removed, or even the blood of an innocent child. So we have the person who plots the revenge and the two people who act out the revenge. But the prior quote also mentions a go-between. Who might that go-between be? The books clearly answer us with two or more specific mentions of Missaria, which directly link her as the go-between. This passage comes from George R. R. Martin's The Rogue Prince. Before long, it was well known in all the low places of King's Landing that he became a familiar sight within the wine sinks where he drank for free and the gambling pits where he always left with more coin than when he entered. Though he sampled countless whores in the city's brothels and was said to have an especial fondness for deflowering maidens, a certain Lysini dancing girl soon became his favorite. Masaria was the name she went by, though her rivals and enemies called her Misery, the White Worm. We have, of course, seen Masaria with Damon early on in season one of the television show and have even heard her called the White Worm. But it is this other name of Misery that actually gives us the most direct evidence of a connection between Damon and Blood and Cheese as we read the next passage from Martin's Fire and Blood in the chapter, The Dying of Dragons, A Son for a Son. In this passage, after the act has been committed, Blood is caught at one of the gates trying to leave the city, and after torture, he reveals who hires him. Blood was seized at the gate of the gods trying to leave King's Landing with the head of Prince Jaehaerys hidden in one of his saddlebags. Under torture, he confessed that he had been taking it to Harrenhal to collect his reward from Prince Damon. He also gave a description of the person he claimed to have hired them. Foreign by her talk, cloaked and hooded, others called her misery. Of course, that passage also reveals which one of Aegon's children is actually killed. Apologies if you expected some kind of big reveal later in this presentation as to who the child would be. I did give you a spoiler warning at the very beginning of this episode. I'll also say that seeing a child's head in a saddlebag isn't exactly must-see television for me. But if the television show goes that route, I wouldn't be surprised. That's just the kind of television show this is. Anyway, with this passage, we now have this confirmation of Messaria slash Misery slash White Worm as Damon's go-between. But why exactly would Messaria go along with this? What is her motivation. In the source material, we see that Masaria might be willing to go along with this for a couple of different reasons. 
for one, she's actually sent away across the narrow sea by Viserys as he also tells his brother to go back to his wife in the Vale. On the narrow sea, Masaria is with child and loses that child who is fathered by Damon. So this is clearly a motivation for Masaria in the books because even if she can't take away Viserys' own son Aegon in some way, she can at least take away one of his grandchildren. Also in the books, we see her end up in the position of Master of Whisperers, not unlike the position that Varys held later on, something that we've seen in the television show that she's obviously good at. And many readers have surmised that a promise of power may have been offered by Daemon in exchange for arranging this act of vengeance. The television show, however, presents some problems regarding the motivations of Masaria. For one, in episode two, Masaria declares that she never desired a position of power, only safety. She also tells Damon that she's made arrangements to never become pregnant, whatever those arrangements may be. And when you really look at it, by the end of episode four, where Masaria, as the White Worm, actually reports Damon and Rhaenyra to Otto, it seems to me that the Damon and Masario relationship is very strained, which is something that doesn't really seem to occur in the books. Still, the seeds of what is spoken in episode two between Damon and Masiria might provide us with the motivation for her to be willing to participate in this heinous act. That lack of safety mentioned may be the very thing that motivates her most in the television plot. We've also seen in episode nine of season one how her using Aegon to try and affect change in Flea Bottom is ineffective and also ends up getting her house slash place of business burned to the ground. These events could motivate her to participate. If Otto is trying to burn your place down, you probably want to try and get some revenge for that. And at least Masaria, if she does end up in a position of power like the Master of Whispers, just as she does in the books, can use that power to affect the change she could not get Otto to make. So we've covered the players in this game, and we've covered some of their motivations. Let's get into the hows of this terrible act. So we have Masaria recruiting blood and cheese on behalf of Damon. But how did Damon reach out to Masaria in the first place? Again, consider that in the TV show, Masaria's status is most optimistically missing after the fires in episode nine. And the show has established a somewhat frigid relationship between the two before that. Really the only clue in the source material that confirms the relationship is still okay between Damon and Masaria comes from the princess and the queen, and it's pretty darn vague. The prince still had friends in low places of King's Landing and followers amongst the gold cloaks. Unbeknownst to King Aegon, the Hand, or the Queen Dowager, he had allies in court as well, even on the Green Council. And one other go-between, a special friend he trusted utterly, who knew the wine sinks and rat pits that festered in the shadow of the Red Keep, as well as Damon himself once had, and who moved easily through the shadows of the city. To this stranger he reached out now, by secret ways, to set a terrible vengeance into motion. 
Again, the books contradict the statuses presented in the television show, but let's put that aside for a moment. The question I personally ask is, what is exactly meant by secret ways? We can, of course, acknowledge that the secret ways could mean something as simple as reaching out through messengers only known to Damon and Messaria themselves. And to follow Occam's razor, that would be the most likely case. But please allow me to put on a tinfoil hat for a few moments. The source material tells us that when Damon takes Harrenhal from the Strongs, there is a servant named Alice Rivers at the castle. We know that that character has been cast for the television show, and at least according to IMDb, will be played in season two by Gail Rankin. Alice Rivers is a very interesting character for readers in a number of ways. Remember that Fire and Blood is a writing derived from three sometimes conflicting and generally not completely reliable sources at all times. A maester named Munkin, a septon named Eustace, who we've seen in the show, and a court jester named Mushroom. Mushroom! Yet all three of these sources seem to agree that Alice is involved with some type of magic. Who was this woman? A serving wench who dabbled in potions and spells, says Munkin. A woods witch, claims Eustace. A malign enchantress who bathed in the blood of virgins to preserve her youth, as Mushroom would have us believe. And we also know that old Valeria, and even past the time of the dance, there was some type of FaceTiming that could be done using mysterious glass candles. Candles that still exist, even if rare in number, well and far past the time of the dance, as Samwell discovers in A Feast of Crows. All Valyrian sorcery was rooted in blood or fire. The sorcerers of the Freehold could see across mountains, seas, and deserts with one of these glass candles. They could enter a man's dreams and give him visions, and speak to one another half a world apart, seated before their candles. We also know that Damon is quite aware of some ancient Valyrian traditions, such as singing to wild dragons in an attempt to get to know them. So is it possible that Damon's secret way of reaching out to Masaria might incorporate Alice via candles, or perhaps one of her own magical methods separate from that. Highly unlikely, but at least thanks for letting me indulge in a little bit of recklessly speculative fun. Reckless speculation. Reckless speculation. Whatever the secret ways are, there is other valuable information in the quote that we started this section off with. It is mentioned that despite all that has already happened between the Blacks and the Greens, Damon still has friends at court, even on the Green Council itself. This could be critical for allowing the planning of how Blood and Cheese will get at the children. And the methodology of getting those children reflects that insider information that might have been needed. This is how Blood and Cheese get to their prey with great ease. We learn from the source material exactly how blood and cheese made their way. The hidden doors and secret tunnels that Magar the Cruel had built were as familiar to the rat catcher as to the rats he hunted. Using a forgotten passageway, cheese led blood into the heart of the castle, unseen by any guard. 
So not only does Cheese's position make him a perfect candidate for getting both him and Blood to their target, as we talked about before, but we also see that that notion of vengeance outweighs a notion or perhaps even a desire for ultimate victory. Some say their quarry was the king himself, but Aegon was accompanied by Kingsguard wherever he went, and even Cheese knew of no way in and out of Mager's holdfast save over the drawbridge that spanned the dry moat and its formidable spikes. Instead of going after the king, again, perhaps with the help of insider information provided by Damon's friends at court, Blood and Cheese go to a position where ambush is most likely effective. The Tower of the Hand was less secure. The two men crept through the walls, bypassing the spearmen posted at the tower doors. Sir Otto's rooms were of no interest to them. Instead, they slipped into his daughter's chambers one floor below. Queen Alicent had taken up residence there after the death of King Viserys, when her son Aegon moved into Mager's Holdfast with his own queen. Once inside, Cheese bound and gagged the Dowager Queen, while Blood strangled her bedmaid. Then they settled down to wait, for they knew it was the custom of Queen Helena to bring her children to see their grandmother every evening before bed. To me, it seems highly unlikely that, even as a regular rat catcher for the Red Keep, Cheese would know the routine of Helena taking her children to see their grandmother, or even the exact location of residence Alicent had taken up in post her son and daughter moving into Mager's Holdfast. These are exactly the kinds of pieces of information that Damon could have gotten from the inside in order to assist Blood and Cheese to be successful. Now, will the television show do this? Maybe. Or maybe everybody's just thinking that I'm bat bleep crazy. But wouldn't it be fun to speculate on who Damon's insider friends are? Who do you think might be Damon's friends in court or on the council? Why don't you let me know? You can send an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com or you can send posts to me on the site formerly known as Twitter at the letter B, the number four, the dragon pod, or you can let me know in YouTube comments. Just use that same spelling that I gave you, the letter B, the number four, the dragon pod, and leave comments in our videos. Like our videos and subscribe to our channel while you're there, if you would, please. Blood and Cheese have easier access to the tower as opposed to the Holdfast, obviously, as well as considering that the Kingsguard likely were at lesser numbers. Even in the show, Sir Westerling has seemingly walked away from the Green Council. Sir Eric, or is it Eric, has defected to Dragonstone along with at least two other Kingsguard, one of them Sir Stephen Darkland, and the other I'm not certain, have pledged their service to Rhaenyra in front of Daemon and Caraxes. And these smaller numbers of Kingsguard still at the Red Keep must concentrate primarily on King Aegon's safety as opposed to King Aegon's mother's. But now we must get to the horrific act itself. And again, I will warn you, some of this may be disturbing. Blind to her danger, the queen appeared as dusk was settling over the castle, accompanied by her three children. Jaehaerys and Jahera were six, male or two. As they entered the apartments, Helena was holding his little hand and calling out her mother's name. Blood barred the door and slew the queen's guardsmen, whilst Cheese appeared to snatch up Maelor. 
Scream and you all die, blood told her grace. Queen Helena kept her calm, it is said. Who are you? She demanded of the two. Debt collectors, said Cheese. An eye for an eye, a son for a son. We only want the one to square things. Won't hurt the rest of you fine folks. Not one little hair. Which one you want to lose, your grace? Once she realized what he meant, Queen Helena pleaded with the men to kill her instead. A wife's not a son, said Blood. It has to be a boy. Cheese warned the queen to make a choice soon before Blood grew bored and raped her little girl. Pick, he said, or we kill them all. Forcing this choice upon Helena is, of course, heinously sadistic. We've all heard the phrase regarding the impossibility of parents to declare their favorite child. This scenario takes that normally somewhat avoidable situation and takes it to its most extreme. I mean, really, George, that is completely sadistic. How can you make a character choose between her children? Especially when in the House of the Dragon podcast, you said... Is there a particular character that you're excited for fans to meet for the first time? Uh, you know, I like all my kids. Yeah. <laughs> Even a bad one. I mean, come on, George. You can't pick a favorite? Helena. You're making Helena pick a favorite. Who the heck are you to make your own characters do something that you can't? <sighs> anyway, back to more about the act. On her knees, weeping, Helena named her youngest, Maelor. Perhaps she thought the boy was too young to understand, or perhaps it was because the older boy, Jaehaerys, was King Aegon's firstborn son and heir, next in line to the Iron Throne. You hear that, little boy? Cheese whispered to Maelor. Your mama wants you dead. Then he gave blood a grin, and the hulking swordsman slew Prince Jaehaerys, striking off the boy's head with a single blow. The queen began to scream. Strange to say, the rat catcher and the butcher were true to their word. They did no further harm to Queen Helena or her surviving children, but rather fled with the prince's head in hand. The fake-out comes across on the page as a shock to the reader, of course, and likely, if it is employed in the television show, will to a television audience as well. By examining the source material, we can now ask a question that could be possibly answered by the television show. A question like, was this fake-out orchestrated by Damon or Masaria, or was it simply something that came out of the sadistic minds of blood and cheese themselves? As far as the text goes, we don't really have an answer to that question. Perhaps the television show will tell us. But another thing to consider is maybe to ask whether the television show will go so far as a fake-out. Perhaps Jaehaerys will be the intended and executed target from the beginning with no fake-out at all. One thing that makes me shudder, but that I can almost guarantee, is that the murder of a child is definitely not something that this show will shy away from. If you think way back to the premiere of Season 2 of Game of Thrones, we saw Joffrey Baratheon order the murder of every Baratheon bastard, young or old. Anyone who might threaten his reign. Additionally, in the penultimate episode of Season 5, we saw Stannis Baratheon sacrifice his daughter. That one still horrifies me. 
but it's not uncommon in George R. R. Martin's work or in the television show prior, or probably this one as well, to have heirs to the throne or potential heirs to the throne be murdered, no matter their age. Now, granted, we are working with different showrunners in House of the Dragon than we were in Game of Thrones, but we are still working with a story from George R. R. Martin's twisted mind, and we are still working with a network that isn't afraid to depict this kind of brutality, even if sometimes protested. And as much as I'd like to take a break and collect myself from recounting all of this that we just discussed, we must now examine the aftermath of this terrible act of vengeance. The truth is, as a matter of revenge instead of an act of war, even though this event did escalate the war quite a bit, of course, Blood and Cheese's plan and actions were actually fairly surgical. Horrible to say, but while something categorized as an act of war might hope to take out all of the children and the two queens themselves, as well as any of the collateral damage to commit the act, we actually end up with only a bedmaid and one guard as collateral damage, and of course the death of poor innocent Jaharis as the chief objective achieved. Again, remember that this act of vengeance is also an act of kinslaying, something that is frowned upon heavily by most of the culture of Westeros, as it should be in any culture. Going back to the original act that inspired all of this, the death of Luke, Luke. Aemon is actually not well received by his mother or his grandfather once they are relayed the news, as we find in Martin's Fire and Blood. Queen Alicent went pale when she heard what he had done, crying, Mother, have mercy on us all. Nor was Sir Otto pleased. You only lost one eye, he is reported to have said. How could you be so blind? Aegon II welcomed Prince Aemon home with a great feast, hailed him as the true blood of the dragon, and announced that he had made a good beginning. Of course, that quote also tells us that King Aegon didn't seem to have much of a problem with Aemon's actions. So does that make you feel any less bad for Jaehaerys or his family? No, no, it, it doesn't for me. But we could ask if Rhaenyra's attitude for Daemon might change in light of this plan of vengeance. After all, we are told a chapter later in Fire and Blood that Rhaenyra was seemingly repulsed by the idea of kinslaying herself. Though shaken by this attempt on her life or on the lives of her sons, the queen was still reluctant. Munkin says this was because of her horror of kinslaying. Mega the Cruel had slain his own nephew and had been cursed thereafter. Now, admittedly, at least by what we saw in the late 2023 teaser trailer, it seems that it is Rhaenys who is actually preaching to Rhaenyra about this notion of kinslaying being a horror. Might that be an indication of Rhaenyra's possible approval of Daemon's plan? Or could Bunkin be correct, and could this plan possibly cause further tension between the Queen and her consort? I suppose we will have to see when the television show comes back, 
in summer of 2024. At any rate, let's move on to the consequences of our two vile perpetrators. We've already seen early on in our discussion that blood is ultimately caught at the gate of the gods while trying to bring the head of Prince Jaehaerys to Daemon. He is tortured and eventually killed after revealing to his captors who was involved. But the truth is there are actually many questions that could be raised in regards to the fate of cheese. Some of the possibilities to answer this I'll just throw up against the wall to see what sticks in a recklessly speculative style. Reckless speculation. Reckless speculation. One involves the question of why was Cheese not with blood in the escape attempt at the gate? Is it possible to ponder that if these men are capable of murdering a child, would they not also be capable of attempting to murder each other so that they wouldn't have to split the reward that was promised? Another possibility might be that Chi simply slipped out of King's Landing, hoping that Blood would bring his portion of the reward to a pre-appointed place and time. But if Cheese merely attempted to blend back into King's Landing's population, or perhaps even resume his profession of rat catcher, we find in the source material that his safety would hardly be guaranteed. No trace of Cheese or the White Worm was ever found. In his grief and fury, King Aegon II commanded that all of the city's rat catchers be taken out and hanged, and this was done. Sir Otto Hightower brought in 100 cats into the Red Keep to take their place. To me, it seems that if Cheese had stuck around and attempted to blend back into society, it wouldn't likely have been for very long. However, one might also think that so long as he was actually rounded up and hung, that either Alicent, who allegedly wanted the real names of these perpetrators so that she could bathe in their family's blood, dark, or Helena herself would have been able to identify Cheese after he had been rounded up, or maybe even after he had been hanged. So with that in mind, maybe he did get away, as we know from later in this story that Masaria did. Maybe he either has, or will, make a cameo appearance in one of Martin's other stories. Maybe the television show will specifically tell us what happens to him. But I wouldn't hold my breath on that. So let me ask you that same question. What do you think might have happened to Cheese in the aftermath of all of this? Let me know in the comments for our videos which you can find on our YouTube channel at the letter B, the number four, the dragon pod, or by using that same spelling to post to us on the site formerly known as Twitter, or you can email me at mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. On a slightly lighter trivia note regarding the execution of rat catchers and the importing of cats, remember that these very cats brought in by Otto are likely the ancestors of many a famous cat in A Song of Ice and Fire and even the Game of Thrones television franchise. The ancestors of the cat that Arya chases through the Red Keep as part of her training with Cereal Pharrell, or perhaps even the ancestors of Tommen's kittens, like Sir Pounce. Another whole set of aftermaths from this act include, now it is Aegon who will be calling for action, and as a result, not only is Otto replaced as Hand of the King by Kristen Cole, and the imminent Battle of Rook's Rest occurs, but yet another plan of response to this incident leads to what I call the Royal Guard Rumble. 
Are you ready to Royal Guard Rumble? Hopefully I won't get a copyright strike for that. But those are tales that we've either already covered on this podcast or that we're saving for another day in the near future. And not to end this section on a dark note, though what part of this presentation isn't dark already, but we must also examine the aftermath that this tragedy has on the mother of these children. Helena's tragedy continues on for her for the rest of her life, as one would think would be the case. Already seen as somebody slightly strange by all those around her, especially in the television show where we see her have tendencies or talents that might make her a Targaryen dreamer, like seeing future events such as Aemond losing his eye to gain a dragon, or a beast beneath the boards being Maelys crashing up through the floor of the dragon pit at Aegon's coronation. Our beloved Helena now completely withdraws in her grief, racked with guilt and madness. Though blood and cheese had spared her life, Queen Helena cannot be said to have survived that fateful dusk. Afterwards, she would not eat, nor bathe, nor leave her chambers, and she could no longer stand to look upon her son Maelor, knowing that she had named him to die. The king had no recourse but to take the boy from her and give her over to his mother, the Dowager Queen, Alicent, to raise as if he were her own. Aegon and his wife slept separately thereafter, and Queen Helena sank deeper and deeper into madness, whilst the king raged and drank and raged. How horrific for a mother to be forced to name a child, and then to have to realize that that child survives and knows that you named him. And to me, she's really the most likable of the Greens. Perhaps he's too young to understand. We'll have to see if there's any other ramifications of that in the television show. But you have to feel absolutely terrible for Helena, who has done nothing wrong, nothing to instigate this war. It's a horrible existence for her. And with that, we conclude our deep dive into Blood and Cheese. We've asked a lot of questions and we've explored a lot of answers or possible answers and yet may find more answers that come with the upcoming television adaptation. What did I miss? What are your thoughts on these topics that we've discussed? I'd love to hear from you. So please feel free to let me know in our comments section for our videos at youtube.com slash at the B, the number four, the dragon pod, or use that same spelling to post to me on the site formerly known as Twitter. You can also send emails to me at mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. I've already received some wonderful feedback on my Rook's Rest presentation, and I want to get your wonderful feedback regarding this presentation. I'm collecting it all for an upcoming edition of the podcast, so get your thoughts to me soon. And with that, this is Matt, and thanks so much for joining me this time around. And of course, we'll talk to you soon on Before the Dragon Podcast.
Find all back episodes and other information at mattsaudioblog.com.